If you would open up your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, uh, we're going to start off there. Uh, I'll introduce myself. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at Village Church this morning. I have the joy to open up God's Word with you. And uh, we're actually in a series on the life of Abraham. This series is called The Conversion of Abraham, and it takes us from Genesis 12 to the beginning of Genesis chapter 15. This is before Abraham uh, truly trusted in God, and in this section of Scripture, his name is Abram. Good job. Awesome. Awesome. Um, What I want to do is I want to set up our text this morning, which will be in Genesis 12, by bringing you to Acts 7, and I want to ask you a question. How good... Do you have to be before becoming a Christian? How good do you have to be before becoming a Christian? What sins does a person need to repent of before God will actually forgive them? Okay? Uh, How much do you have to clean yourself up before you can come to God and say, forgive me of, of my sins? So I want to tell you two stories. They're not true stories, uh, but they are reflective of many other people's personal testimonies. A 23-year-old couple has been living together and sleeping together for three years. They have never once been told it's wrong. That might blow your mind, by the way, if you grew up in a semi-Judeo-Christian home, maybe your parents were even half-hearted Christians going to church once in a while. You had categories of this. I'm here to tell you there's a whole generation of people growing up with no experience in church, and they are being celebrated for what you might have been taught was not what God wants from you. So there are these ideas that we take for granted, brand new concepts for a whole generation. I'm talking millions and millions and millions of young people. There is no category in their mind that God would not celebrate their relationship like all of their family and friends. Especially, there is no category in their mind that God would not celebrate their commitment to each other, their monogamy, their living together, and their faithfulness to each other. Now, they want to genuinely trust in Christ. The Spirit is drawing them. And here's my question. What sins do they need to both understand and give up before God will allow them to come to him? All right, let's go on. A 37-year-old transgendered person is considering trusting in Jesus and becoming a Christian. 37-year-old transgender. They've experienced gender dysphoria since the age of 11. Their LGBTQ community has celebrated them for their bravery to be, quote, who they really are. The concept that gender might not be fluid isn't just new to them, it's oppressive. They can't believe that there are actual people who believe that God has created male and female, that's it. There's no category in their mind that God would not celebrate their decision to transition. Now, They want to genuinely trust in Christ. Here's my question. What sins do they need to both understand and give up before they trust in Christ? Uh, Here's one of the realities about many of you, right? Um, Many of you, before you came to Christ, you had no idea what was wrong with you. You might have known you were a sinner. You might be able to point to one or two or three or five things in your life. 
Let me just give you a, a huge encouragement. You are way worse than you think you are, okay? Uh, I'm putting myself in that you category in case you think I'm some pretentious, arrogant preacher who's like, you all, right now. Like, we are a pretty terrible lot of people. Now, here's the reality, right? Uh, God has not shown you the full weight of your evil. So could you imagine if the moment you trust in Christ, here's what God does. He says, I'm going to reveal to you the deepest depths of your heart, all of the wickedness that you don't even know is there. I'm going to put it on the table. I'm going to talk about your manipulation, your deceitfulness, your identity transference, all of the problems, your sexuality, all the things that you want that are broken, the things you think are good that are actually evil. I'm going to lay all of them out before you right now. Now change. Like how many of you are really grateful that God is only exposed in a typical day like two or three absolutely ridiculously broken things about your life? Like, here's what I know. I got, like, three big things. I'm like, man, I am so dumb. I'm working on them. And as soon as I start to see, like, one kind of, like, grow and the Lord started to heal me in that area, there's, like, three more, like, on the horizon that the Lord's like, oh, by the way, did you see this and this and this? I'm like, oh, just when I thought I was a good person or getting better, the Lord just shows me the depths of my heart. There's more and there's so much I don't even know. Like, I'm really grateful that God is very patient as he exposes my sin. When you came to Christ, you knew a tenth of a percent, and that's like giving you the benefit of the doubt of the brokenness inside of you. And it's interesting because we're, we're, we're starting to watch a generation of people consider Christ who have no Judeo-Christian background whatsoever. And when they come into the Christian community and they start to hear teaching from the word of God, they're not just ideas they're against, they're ideas that are just brand spanking new to them. And so these people come to Christ. They believe they're a sinner. Again, they don't understand the depths of it or where the brokenness is all the time or how it got there. They just know some things are not okay. They know they need a Savior. They do have faith. They believe that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead and is coming back. But I'm telling you, like, they don't fit the mold. Now, here's my question. They, they come to our church. Um, are we going to be patient with them? Um, how quickly do they need to get rid of all of their sin for them to be, like, in, you know? Um, now, I'm not talking about people who know it's wrong and persist. Do you see the difference? I'm talking about people who don't even have categories for right and wrong. And sometimes it takes a year or two or three or four to begin to dismantle all the broken aspects of their worldview and their morality and to show them from the ground up a more better way, a life-giving way, the way of Jesus Christ. It's interesting because um, most Christians that I find in suburban America, you grew up with some sort of a Judeo-Christian ethic, and we don't necessarily have categories for the generation of young people who are coming up after us that the Lord is genuinely drawing to himself. Now, as we study the life of Abraham, I want you to see something amazing. Um, this first section, I think, for most people's narrative and understanding of Abraham, it sort of blows it up because most people had in their brain that God saw Abraham, this really, really good, wealthy, rich man who's going to do great things for the kingdom, and said, I could use you. And then he says to him, go. And Abraham's like, I will go anywhere you tell me to go. And then Abraham went and God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you because you're so awesome. That perspective on the story could not be more false. In fact, we saw a piece of it last week and we're going to just see the fact that right now in Genesis 12, 13, and 14, Abram is being called by God. He has not yet trusted in God and this man is not a good man. This man is a broken man. This man is not healthy spiritually, emotionally, relationally, functionally, morally. 
this is a very, very broken man. And one of the questions I've actually had as I've read about the story of Abraham from, from chapter 12 to chapter 14 is, would Abraham even be allowed as a non-Christian to come into this church and to figure out whether or not he, he believes? And so here's what we have, Genesis 12. Genesis 12, God comes to Abram, uh, and he offers him these amazing promises, basically offers him salvation with Old Testament promises. And uh, in Genesis 15, verse 6, that is, that is the first time Abram truly trusts in God. Uh, we say it like this, Abraham got saved. In Genesis 12, 13, 14, and 15, 1 through 5, Abram has yet to trust in God. He's figuring it out. Abram, Abram is not the greatest man of faith in, in the entire world at this time. He might have a mustard seed of faith, but this man is struggling to figure out whether or not he's absolutely, surely, maybe, possibly going to trust in the one true God, Yahweh. He was a typical, uh, seemingly rich, polytheistic, pagan man from a place called Ur, um, probably participated, because he's 75 years old at this time, in decades and decades of ritualistic and sexual, um, immoral, cultic behavior that wasn't even considered to be bad. It was just his normal, right? Um, this is not like your typical guy. I mean, imagine if somebody came to Village Church and their entire world has been knee-deep and steeped in cultic paganism. I mean, could you imagine that? Uh, the idea of human sacrifice, normal for them, like what's, what's wrong with that? That's just what the gods need. You get the idea, like there's just a, a moral level to this guy that most of us, we transfer like maybe our grandpa to him, 75-year-old grandpa, and it's like, no, it's actually not a fair, it's not a fair transference. So this morning, again, we'll be in Genesis 12, 10, and 13, uh, that's chapter 13, but first let's look at Acts 7. This is going to set some context for us. Acts chapter 7, verse 2 Here's what's happening. Stephen is about to be killed. Um, he's giving testimony to Jesus before the high priest and the Jewish leaders. Here's what he says. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Ur, that's the U-R, the name of the city. Before he lived in Haran. So, all right, if you're new to the story, stick with me. This is a point when you read Acts chapter 7, you should say this. When did Abram live in Haran? So here's the deal. You leave Ur, you go 600 miles north-ish to Haran, and then it's another 400 miles to the promised land. I remember the story like this. I remember in Genesis 12, the story goes, he left Ur and then went to the promised land. But then Acts 7 is telling us something actually really interesting happened on the way there. Watch this. Verse 3 says, And God said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred. So he's supposed to leave his father. He's supposed to be, leave his cousins. Everyone not immediate family, he's supposed to leave behind. And go into the land that I will show you. And verse 4 says this, Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans, and he lived in Haran. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Where was he supposed to go? Canaan. Haran is on the way. Why did he stop? What's going on? Now, the text gets a little bit more interesting. And it says, after his father died, what did God have to do to him? God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. You know the narrative that Abraham went leaping with joy and jumping to the promised land? He went. Not only did he disobey, as we saw last week, by taking Lot, 
He also took his dad with him, whom he was told to leave behind. What's interesting here, and scholars have surmised um, that as they go to Haran, Haran, by the way, is Lot's father. That's the city named after him. And so Abram's uh, dad, Terah, comes to Haran and stays there. This is familiar. It's family. It's easy. Canaan is a mystery. We know the people there are evil. There's a lot of tribal warfare going on over there. It's a dangerous place. So here's what Abram seems to do. He seems to stop, and we don't know why his dad died. There's two options. Either one is just old age, or number two, his father disobeyed and died, and that was one of the ways that God um, got Abram, removed him from Haran. We don't, we don't know the answer, surmising at best, but here's what we know. Abram, he gets to Haran, and he's done following. He's going to set up camp there, and the Lord ultimately has to reach in and remove him out of there to take him where he wants him to be. The, the, the scriptures paint a way less glorious version of this journey than the little version that we like to tell ourselves sometimes. That this great man of faith who would ultimately and legitimately transform the entire world, that this man had to be dragged kicking and screaming to the promise that God had offered him. So as we dig deeper into Abram's conversion, I want to give you two encouragements. Especially I want to give two encouragements for those who are considering trusting in Christ Because in the stories we're going to read today, Abram is not yet a true follower of God. He's not yet saved, forgiven, justified. That happens in Genesis 15, 6. Um, For those of you who are considering trusting in Christ, there are just two massive encouragements I want to give you this morning. Um, What's interesting is that these encouragements apply to all of you who have trusted in Christ. Because the very same things that Abram was tempted to do as a non-Christian, he's going to be tempted to do again once he placed his faith in Yahweh, the one true God. So point number one in your notes, my first word of encouragement for you, don't walk away because it's hard. Don't walk away because it's hard. Now, if you've been a part of Village Church for any semblance of time, you've heard me about every two months go on the same rant, okay? Um, I'm gonna go on this rant again because I don't think we can hear it enough. Uh, The greatest things in life are hard. The greatest things in life are not easy. The greatest things in life are hard. You want to have a great marriage? It's hard. You want to have a great family? It's hard. You want to raise great kids? Good luck. That's really hard. You want to be a great boss? It's really hard. Everything worth it in life is a fight, and it's not easy. You want to run a great business? It's hard. You want to be a part of a great church? It's hard. You want to have a great community group? It's hard. It is difficult. Everything in life that is worth it is really hard. Find the best friendships you have ever had, and they will be tested and they will be challenged. Great friendships are hard. Being a great person is even more difficult. Being a great athlete, it is hard. Being a great father and a mother, and well, grandparenting is a little easier, but everyone else is hard, right? Why Why would following God be any different? It's not. And so one of the greatest gifts I feel like I can give you is that, oh, you want to trust in Christ? It's hard. Not trusting in Christ is hard. Give me Jesus any day and the difficulty that comes with him. I'm just telling you, life is just generally hard. And the idea that when you come after Jesus, he's going to be like, all right, it's all going to be fluffy bunnies and clouds and pillows, and we're going to take a big nap until you die. It's not the case. And so God's going to do is he's going to ask you to do hard things. The greatest things in life are hard, but they're worth the sacrifice. Get to the text, Michael. Here it is, Genesis chapter 12. Verse 10, now, there's a famine in the land. 
So what does Abram, what does Abram do? Logical. Leave. Walk away from the promise. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Why? Because the famine was severe in the land. Last time we saw this, last week, that he went with hesitance. And the moment it got a little bit difficult, he literally abandoned the promise. Like God is saying, Abram, everything you could ever want in this world is yours. Go to this land. God brings him, drags him, kicking and screaming, it seems like. And as soon as he gets to the land, it doesn't meet his expectations. And you know what? He's out. He abandoned the promise because it was hard. Drives me nuts. Now, before we ever condemn somebody, I think it's a good practice to try to empathize with maybe their plight and what they're going through. So what would it be like if I was a semi-wealthy businessman uh, entering a famine zone in the ancient Near East? Here's what I can tell you. A few things. Number one, it's painful. It's physically painful. Just the heat, the dryness, everything. It's exhausting. It's actually very exhausting. And, and the same level, it's boring. Because you can't overwork your animals, you can't overwork yourself because food is rationed, water is rationed, and so it's just an incredibly boring, boring time. Uh, an insane amount of animal death ultimately leading to human, human death. The daily loss of wealth. I mean, imagine this. Every single animal that dies, your net worth goes down. And you don't know how long this is going to last. So every day you stay is another day that you get poor. It would take years to recover once it rains again. Uh, very wealthy men in, in, in famine economies, if you will, uh, ultimately lose everything and never get it back. Like, this isn't easy. There's a lot, there's a lot at risk to stay right now. He could have easily given up, and if he stayed, he could be easily broken dead. And so I imagine he looks at Sarai, his wife, and he says something like this. I imagine he says, hey, sweetie, Sarai, even the Canaanites, like, they've been, they live in this land. Even the Canaanites are going to Egypt. So, like, if everybody's doing it, how bad could it be? <laughs> By the way, that's like the worst logic ever, right? If everybody's doing it, it's probably a stupid decision. So for what it's worth. <laughs> Isaiah 31, verse 1, gives us uh, almost like a prophetic insight into what's happening. And it shows you that for God's people, almost always going down to Egypt is a bad thing. Here's what it says, Isaiah 31, 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. And rely on horses whose trust, who trust in chariots because they are many and horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. When God does not meet your expectations, which by the way, unbelievable, myself and almost all of you in this room, how many expectations that we have of God that he has never told us he would do? He's like, he's like, that's your transference of expectations on me. I never told you this would be easy. In fact, if you actually listen to Jesus, he's like, hey, if you follow me, it's going to be really, really hard. FYI, by, by the way. Verse 11, here's what it says. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, listen, I know you're a beautiful woman. You're, you're beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Could you imagine? Like you're looking at this woman and you're thinking about marrying her and you're like, here's your choice. Oh, she's so beautiful. She's so beautiful, I'll probably get killed. Like what a conundrum you have to deal with. 
And so he's sitting here, and he's like, okay, now I'm at, he's like, oh, no. Like, I know she's beautiful. I know she's amazing. But who would have ever thought it would lead to my death? Like, this is actually legit what's going through his brain. Now, I want to just pause for a moment. I got to, like, get you into a category. I can't not read this without drawing a theme together for you, okay? What does this tell you about the state of tribalism in the ancient Near East? That literally, you come in with a beautiful woman, and you will get killed so they can take your wife. Like, this is normal. This is expected, right? Uh, now, you go to Mesopotamia. This is where he came from. You go to Canaan. It, it had a reputation for being even worse in these tribal communities. There's a reason that when Abram went to the promised land, he hovered around the perimeter of it because the Canaanites were vile, vile people. There's an interesting theme. If you draw out the stories of God's people interacting with the Canaanites in these tribal places, what you're going to find, these are some of the most vile and grotesque tribes you could imagine. What is their everyday normal, killing a man and taking his wife, right? We don't, like, we can't even process that as normal life. Like, nobody came into Barlet. They're like, honey, you're too hot. So, like, people are going to kill me if they see you. Nobody has to think about this stuff. And so when God comes in and he's like, okay, Israel, um, eradicate all of these tribes. Now, they're not like multi-millions of people, nations. These are tribal communities that are some of the most vile cultures you can imagine. You cannot understand mass genocide, if you will, until you understand some of the actual numerical and cultural context that God is sending the Israelites into. It's crazy. Very different world. If you start plucking out these stories, it's not pretty fancy, nice people just like you and me and innocent little kids. It's a really, really vile culture. So here's what he says in verse 13, say, say you're my sister. By the way, it's true. Uh, Sarah is his half-sister. Weird? Oh, yes, but it's true. Don't do it. <clears throat> um, say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life might be spared for your sake, of course, of course, of course. Let's talk about the integrity of the man, okay? Um, willing to walk away from God, no prayer to God for help, willing to abandon the promise. So we're going to say spiritually not in a good place. But we probably should know that because he's not yet a true follower of God. That's a couple chapters to come. Ethically, uh, does not hesitate to manipulate and deceive. By the way, this is normal. This is human wisdom because in this culture, if you don't manipulate and deceive, you die. So logically, that feels right, but that's his, that's his ethic. Let's talk about relationally. He just told his wife, sleep with whoever you have to so I don't die, right? Like, I'm sorry, ladies, can you just give your husband a big hug? Because whoever he is, he's better than this, okay? Like, guys, hashtag at least I'm not Abram, okay? So like, <laughs> like it could be worse. <laughs> I'll notice that no women give their husbands hugs. Interesting, but we'll keep going. All right. Was he serious? I don't know. In the first service, like 15 women leaned over and grabbed their husbands. I was like, yeah, I didn't expect that, but all right. There we go. Verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful, of course, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. It's interesting, now she's not called Sarai, she's called the woman because she's just an object. This is a little like rhetorical, grammatical nuance that sometimes when the text wants you to see these things, they dehumanize the woman and she's no longer a human, she's just a woman for her beauty. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house to officially be his wife and all that goes with that. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. Uh, and it seems that the mass, like majority of Abram's wealth came in Egypt. 
that because of his disobedience, he actually got incredibly wealthy. Here's what it says. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. And one wonders, do you miss your wife? Are you just living fat and happy? Well, I hope she's okay. She's living in the palace of Pharaoh, and I got everything I could ever want, and then some. But it was all a lie. It was all a lie. There was no promise in Egypt. There was the, the true God was not found in Egypt. He would be found in Canaan. Uh, it was all a facade. And at the end of the day, the lie just ends in a curse. This is what it does. I think of so many people, and I can't help but make an analogy out of this. I can't think of I, so many people have trusted in Christ, and I just call it metaphorically running to Egypt. It's too hard, so they run. They go to places and friend groups and make decisions because it's easy and it feels good, not realizing that God will bring you back to Canaan. He will bring you back to the promised land, kicking and screaming. And that what you thought was so fun because walking with God was so hard will actually end up being a way bigger curse and way more difficult than following God ever could have been. There are so many people I want to plead with, and I'm like, you trusted in Christ and now you're going to Egypt? Why? Nothing is there for you except cursing. There is no prayer in Egypt. There is no God in Egypt. There is nothing but cursing waiting for you there and a little bit of fun on the way, which will also turn around and ruin you. Verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Uh, there are plagues later on in the Torah and Exodus, and I wonder if any of those 10 plagues, like if they all broke out with boils all over their bodies or all of their water turned to blood. I don't know what the plagues were. All I know is it was enough to make Pharaoh scared of Abram's God. Because Pharaoh should have killed Abram, but he didn't. And so here's what it says in verse 18. So Pharaoh, he called Abram and he said, what is this you have done to me? Like, do you imagine screaming at this point? <clears throat> Could you imagine sitting before Pharaoh? You deceived him and you're expecting this is the moment where your head is going to be chopped off. Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? Well, it's sort of half true. So that I took her for my wife. How could you do this to your wife? That's my question. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. I want you to catch something. In the ancient Near East, this is one of the most shameful, humiliating things that can be done. Because he was publicly mocked, shamed, his name dragged through the mud. He was humiliated in front of all of his servants and his wife and his friends and Lot and everybody else. This is a shamed, embarrassed man. And God is going to drag him back with all of his shame back to the promised land. Abram's learning an unbelievably important lesson that he will not forget for the rest of his life. Better to be with God in famine than away from God with excess. It's better to be with God in famine than away from God in excess. The story goes on in chapter 13. Uh, I want to take a minute because some of you are newer to the Bible. So in your brain, you have this uh, distinction that when a chapter is over, that necessarily the story is over. So just for what it's worth, um, chapters, verses, spaces, periods, commas, exclamation points, you name it, anything other than just capital letters um, was not a part of the original text. And so um, the idea of chapters and verses were added hundreds of years ago, okay? But sometimes a new chapter starts, but we're in the middle of a story. So don't ever stop reading because you get to a new chapter because the story might not be done. This story continues. Chapter 13, verse 1, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and, and you're going to watch Lot, Okay? Like, every time you see Lot in your heart, go, like, why is he there? Because that's, the author, it keeps 
poking at this, saying, this is bad. Like, we don't want him here. And so Lot uh, and Lot with him, and they went into the Negev. The Negev is the wilderness. This is where Israel wandered for 40 years. The Negev is the space between the curse and the promise, Egypt and Canaan. The Negev, every time you run back to Egypt, um, it's not always easy to get back into the promised land. There's a lot of repentance. There's a lot of ownership. There's a lot of challenges. And the Negev is this metaphorical place you have to walk through after you have left, and it's not easy. Most great things in life are not easy. They're difficult. But you walk through the Negev, and it's hard. And God, when you get out of the Negev, brings you right back to the very same place you were at the beginning. Verse 2, he says this, Now Abram was very rich in livestock, and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, I love this, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. We're starting right over where we started. Between Bethel and Ai, and the author just wants you to get this. When it's repeated, you know he wants you to know something. To the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. We don't know what he said. We don't know if he said, help me. He don't know, we don't know if he said, can you bring rain? Um, we do know this. He has not yet fully trusted in God yet. There's more to come, and the next, the next story is going to show you. Like, this man is not yet ready to trust in Yahweh. So before we get to point number two, let's pull back the curtain just for a moment. I want to ask a question. What do we learn about God? So, so far, Abram seems to take center stage. But God is all over this text. I want to share with you two things. Number one, God is a patient pursuer. In theory, the moment Abram stopped in Haran, God should have said, you're not taking me seriously at all. I'm done with you. I'm going to go to somebody more righteous. But when God makes a decision to call somebody, he is relentless. He is so relentless. I love this about our God. He relentlessly and patiently draws Abram ultimately back to himself. I imagine it's almost like he keeps bringing him back to church, pushing him to a decision. Abram runs out the doors, goes to Egypt, lives his life, and the Lord just drags him back again saying, here we are again. What are you going to do? And Abram does it over and over again, and God's patience with him is just unbelievable. The second thing you learn is God is sincerely gracious. Sincerely gracious. This is undeserved. There will never be a moment in Abram's life where he looks back on this series of events and says, I was a pretty good guy, and I feel like God chose me because I was like better than most. Abram was not a good man. Abram was a sinner who had massively fallen short of the glory of God. Abram was a 75-year-old pagan who lived the pagan lifestyle. Abram was a man who was offered unbelievable riches and blessing by God and with a dime just let it go and threw it, threw it away. And we're not done yet. Point number two, if I could give you an encouragement, don't give up on the promise for the pragmatic. Do not give up the promise for the pragmatic. If you don't know what pragmatic means, look it up, and uh, that'll be all the more reason for you to pull out your phone. Genesis 13, 5. And Lot, oh, why is he there? And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. Uh, we talked about last week, Lot was the good thing that God wants you to leave behind. It doesn't matter. Sometimes God says leave behind bad things. Sometimes he says leave behind good things. And most of the time, it's a relationship or a comfort. And God was very clear. You leave this guy behind. And every time Lot comes up, he's making Abram's life even more difficult. And the Lord is not content to let 
Abram keep anything that he told him to leave. So basically, here's what God says. God says, I don't want, Ab- I don't want Lot in your life. I told you to leave him behind. And so if you don't leave him behind, I'm going to make your life really difficult, and I'm going to force your hand on this. And he does. It says, the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. It was interesting that the blessing, right, was actually the means by which God used to get rid of Lot. And then they go figure verse 7. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now, um, one of the things Genesis does as you're reading, you just got to know this, they'll drop little like sentences of context. We're going to pick this up in a few weeks. We'll come back to it. But just for your FYI, at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. That'll be relevant later. Then Abram, verse 8, said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. For we are, what is it? Kinsmen. Are there supposed to be kinsmen with him? No, the, the, the text is just constantly throwing you back, saying this is not good. Now, if you ever take Enneagrams, um, uh, Abram is an Enneagram 9. I can just see it all over the page, right? He's like, whatever we can do for peace, I don't want there to be any conflict. Is everybody happy? Like, I just want to do things to appease you. No offense to the Enneagram 9s. I love you. You're some of my favorite humans on the planet. But like, peace, 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 peace. And here's a warning for you. For the sake of peace and the pragmatics of having your family be everybody okay and everybody likes each other, nobody's upset. By the way, that's not humanly possible for what it's worth. Here's what he does. One of the stupidest decisions like, you re- if you don't stop and read this slowly, you may just miss this, and you may actually say, wow, Abraham's a good guy. Look at that. No, this is stupid. Here's what he says. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. And if you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. And if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Let me just plot this out for you, okay? On the left, or the west, is the promised land. And on the right is not the promised land. And here's what Abram does. He defers. But in the process of deferring, he opens up the plausibility of losing the promise. For the sake of peace, he is willing to give Lot the first choice. You can have the promised land in famine, or you can have this land. Now, one of my favorite principles is the principle of deferment. Uh, I think learning how to defer or mutually submit is one of the most beautiful, awesome things that a Christian can ever learn. All I know is if I'm Abram and I give the option to decide to somebody and I say, you can pick the beautiful land or the famine land, I'm going to be kind of angry if they don't defer and they're like, forget you, I'm going to take the beautiful land, you can go die in the famine, right? What we find here is Lot's just kind of a big jerk. And I don't know if you see that, but you're going to, I'm not saying that at the end of the day he doesn't end up coming to believe in God truly, I'm just saying that Abram and Lot are pretty selfish men. And Abram, in this moment, is willing to throw away the promise just for the sake of the pragmatic nature of peace. It's all an illusion. So here's, here's what happens in verse 10. You're like, what's he going to do? And Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the Garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Get another context for a few weeks. So Lot selfishly chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east and they separated from each other. And verse 12 is this great piece of just satisfying. (sighs) Abram settled in the land of Canaan. No more meandering, no more wandering. He's finally in the land of promise. While Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. We're going to pick this up next week, but I want to share with you a few so what's.
Number one, Abram was not a good man. God did not pluck Abram out because Abram had so much potential. God saved Abram, and for the rest of Abram's life, there would never be a moment where he would take credit for his salvation because he attempted to throw it away time and time and time again. Despite all this, number two, God still pursued him. Like, wouldn't you have given up? Like, really? You're going to give it away? Let me just, let me take a moment and read for you the next few verses from Genesis 13. It starts in verse 14 and goes to verse 18. He had just, literally just, almost given up the promised land. And listen to what happens. The eyes, or the Lord said to Abraham, Abram, after Lot separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Would you do that to the person who almost just threw it away? I wouldn't. He goes on. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. That is the last thing that I would expect God would do to somebody who is abandoning, exchanging, neglecting, and throwing away the promise. But isn't this a story of our life? Like, if you can't see Abram and see yourself before you were a Christian, you might be missing the point of the story. The point of the story is that God doesn't call good people. He calls sick people. Number three, salvation is all of grace. 100%. Know you, all God. All of grace. Abram would know this for the rest of his life. Finally, I want to come back to the question that I asked at the beginning. So how good must we be before we can come to Christ? I have great news for you. Um, There is no measure. In fact, the worse you are, the more ready you are. If you you are as broken as can be and your life is a mess, you are an addict, you are a liar, you are a thief, you are, you fill in the blank. You are ripe and ready to trust in Jesus Christ. If somebody made you believe that good people become Christians, that is a flat-out lie. God calls the sick, he summons the spiritually broke, and the more broke you are, the more ready and ripe you are to trust in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what that means, Phil's Church. That means when people come to Christ, they don't have it all together. That means there is a special, unique sensitivity to people who are literally just trying to untangle years or decades of unbelief and entanglements, and they don't even know the tenth of their actual sin. That's even generous. What you find is that in a church, right, you're going to find people who are brand new, and they have not worked through a lot, and they are struggling, and they are rough around the edges. God bless them. Because God is dismantling them and working in their heart in a beautiful way. It's interesting because people, um, this is kind of a catch-22, they, um, they come to church and, and they have this really bad experience with like a person. They're like, oh, they were so mean, you know, like the church is mean. You know that, you know that feeling like when someone has a really bad first impression with a really grumpy person? Uh, what they don't know is that like, yeah, 
Um, that person actually maybe just came to Christ. That person's wrestling through a thousand things. And so it's not actually unexpected that when you come to church, somebody might not be the nicest because honestly, I think the day Abram came to Christ, I think he might have been kind of a jerk sometimes. I think he might not have been the nicest guy. I mean, he's still the guy who just maybe a couple months ago gave his wife to Pharaoh. Like that is a level of brokenness that the majority of you in this room can't even fathom. And he's about to come to faith. And I think about all of these people in, 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 our, in our world, in our country, who have literally had zero experience with the gospel, with truth, with Christianity. And all, here's what they know. They hear the gospel. They hear that they're a sinner. They hear that things aren't okay in their heart. They believe in Jesus Christ. They have a mustard seed or even more of faith, but they know nothing. They don't know what God is going to ask them to do. They don't know what the Bible says. Here's what they just know. I'm a sinner. God is holy. Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and God the Father raised him from the dead. I believe. That's all they got. That's all they got. And somehow I think the church has to be able to, if we're going to really be effective over the next 10 to 20 years, figure out how to be incredibly gracious and sensitive in this period where people are coming to know the Lord. Now, if you're in that period right now, I want to, I want to, I want to be very, very just clear with you. Um, I'm so glad that you've come to know the Lord. But there will come a day, and it probably has already come, when you see so clearly in the word what God says is true, and if you know what God's word says to do and you don't do it, that is a sin that I want to talk to you about. That's something that, I, that we're not going to say, ah, no big deal. Um, and so you might be in a place where you're like, you know what, I I'm new to this thing, and, but I do know what the Lord wants from me. I just want to strongly encourage you, repent of the things that you know are sin and follow the Lord. And I'm telling you, it's going to be hard, is it not? Because every time the Lord asks you to do something, almost always it's going to be difficult. It's just what he does. But it's worth it. Let's pray together. Father, you, the fact that you saved Abram gives us hope. <laughs> um, we are sinners. We have massively fallen short of your perfect standard. And you have still pursued us. And we, we're just going to agree with your word that our salvation is all of grace. On our own, we flee, we run, we abandon promises. But Lord, you give faith, you open up eyes, you give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. And so, um, Lord, as we remember what you've done for us on the cross as we come to this communion time, would you um, fill our hearts with unbelievable, immeasurable gratitude for how good you've been to us and the fact that you pursued us. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.